0: Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing with your host, Vincent Pham a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 Award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of Destination CMO. This is an episode I've been looking forward to for a while. Our guest today is Lisa Campbell, who's the chief marketing officer at OneTrust. When you take a look at the role of marketers, it's really establishing trust and building relationships with whether that's a direct to consumer, whether it's with another company. And really in B 2 B2B businesses, you still have elements of relationships that you're building with people who work within that client company. And so I'm really excited to be able to go deep with Lisa on how do you actually go about establishing this type of trust and tactically, how does that actually come to life? It's one thing to be able to write something and put it up on your website. It's another thing to actually be able to hit the different touch points, whether that's through employees, whether that's through customer service teams. And how do you actually bring that to life across all of the different areas that market Marketing touches. She also serves as an independent board director at Dropbox, which is a company that needs no introduction. Prior to OneTrust, she spent 18 years at Autodesk, where she served most recently as the chief marketing officer and executive vice president of business strategy and marketing. And Lisa was also the chairman of the board for the Autodesk Foundation. Lisa, it's so great to have you here on this episode. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Vincent. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You have a really interesting career trajectory in terms of just like the path that you took to CMO. You actually started out in a technical background before becoming a CMO, which is kind of a common thing of really strong marketers oftentimes spend time in other functions. For me, I was actually in a sales role before jumping over to marketing, which completely changes my perspective on the relationship between sales teams and CMOs. For you, how has that given you a unique view into the nuts and bolts of your day-to-day work?
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of having what I call a non-linear career. So I kind of like the zigzag as you were just talking about. So I think it's great for marketers to get experience outside of the marketing function. I've run every marketing function there is, but outside of that, what was great is I had the opportunity to be general manager of a business unit, right? I got a chance to build the e-commerce business because I knew all of the B2B direct selling, but not as much of the self-serve business. And I was able to run a telemarketing organization in the past. So my background, I'm a computer science and mathematics undergrad, which meant Lisa's going into software. I've spent my entire (laughs) career in software. But what's really interesting is, is I had all those different experiences. And to your point, when you walk a mile in the other shoes, you just have more empathy and you understand where they're coming from. And I think it just makes you a better leader and a better manager. So I loved getting all those different experiences.
1: Yeah, I love some of the stuff that you're talking about because part of the challenge in marketing is what actually comes to life with customers and with consumers is the messaging that they're actually seeing. And I feel marketing is this theoretical or philosophical exercise, but even in B2B selling today, some of the best marketing materials I've seen are actually content that accountant executives are creating and posting on LinkedIn, which makes the traditional marketer so nervous to be able to hand over that type of touch point. And yet that's where sales is going today in the B2B space.
2: You know what though, lines are blurring everywhere. Also, you and I were talking previously, just when we were chit-chatting, getting to know each other, customer experience and customer success, right? Yep. A lot of customer service is done through social media these days. Mm-hmm. Customer experience is felt through social media. So it's really hard to start to say, everything's just contained in one functional group. Their lines blur. But the other thing that I would say, and one of the reasons probably why marketers sometimes get nervous about that is because we are having to really understand privacy. So I will tell you, I know more about data and respecting people's privacy, consent, and preferences than I have ever known before as a CMO. And I think it makes us stronger in the marketing field. And so I know marketers are always, do we have their consent? Have they opted in for this? Are we allowed to be able to contact with them with this information? Because if somebody is reaching out and putting material in front of a customer where they did not opt into that or they did not give consent, you and I both know that's going to damage your brand. And it is very hard to recover from that. And that's why I think sometimes marketers get nervous. So that's why I think we always have to have this tight partnership with sales just to make sure that everybody understands what is the baseline foundational information you need to have before you go put a message out there.
1: So let's set the stage a little bit for the audience who's listening to this podcast or watching this on YouTube or LinkedIn. When you take a look at what has happened over the past five to 10 years, there has been increased consumer regulatory changes that have driven privacy changes. And quite frankly, some of these things are uh, perhaps should have been always in place. So when you hear about things, GDPR over in Europe, that drove things you should be able to export your data. You should be able to request that a company delete data about you. They kind of seem like no-brainers, strengthened by CPA in California. But for a lot of companies, your customers are kind of everywhere. So it doesn't make sense to manage some of this stuff on a state-by-state level. And we're heading into a world that is becoming even more interesting with this cookie world that Google was talking about and the transition really emphasis on first party data. What am I missing here? What are the other kind of big macro changes that marketers need to be aware of?
2: Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of everybody in marketing needs to lean into first party data. And what do we mean by that? You don't have to rely on third-party data anymore. First-party data is your customer or prospect giving you direct consent. They're giving you their information and they're saying, I am consenting to you to interact with me, to send me something. And what I'm finding is that's a virtuous cycle. So if I give you consent and I say, all right, I'm going to let you message me. And you give me something in return that's valuable... And helpful to me i am more likely to give you more of my information because you're personalizing it and you're making it valuable to me and i say okay great i'll give you more information and then you get this virtuous cycle going sometimes people think of it as a flywheel so marketers really have to lean into first party data but your other comment about gdpr and then of course the laws that you're having in all the different states in the united states we don't have a national privacy law in the country. So we are seeing different states come on board and saying, here's our new regulations. And companies have to respect that and marketers need to respect that. And the laws are different. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why One Trust also has a really strong privacy business, because we help you, one, understand the regulations and figure out not only how are you compliant, but how do you go beyond compliance so that you can help build trust. So I think you have to learn about that as well. You have to determine how can I have more personalized experiences I think marketers also need to know that you need to have consent and preference as a baseline capability. You should always be collecting from your customers. How do you prefer to be interacted with? You and I do this when we go onto a website. Look, you can contact me with a newsletter. I want to subscribe to that. Don't email me. Or I want to hear your podcast or your blogs, but don't email me. Or somebody says, you can email me, but I don't want anything else. And so you have to track that as a marketer and you can't ignore any of that because our consumers are getting smarter and smarter. Every consumer now knows that they have more rights. You just mentioned, if I want my data deleted, I can ask for data deletion. And I can ask you, what is the purpose by which you're collecting this data and how are you using it? And all of that leads to trust. And I believe every company today is on what I call a trust transformation journey. And being a trusted brand is very hard to get to that. And as you and I both know, very easy to lose trust in your brand. Somebody yes. says something or something happens, it is completely out there in social media. And then you're really in crisis mode. So you really need to protect the trust of your brand and constantly be building on the purpose where people are saying you're collecting this data, you're using my data, you're doing it in a helpful way, you're respecting my consent. And therefore, I trust your brand.
1: And I think about some of the most prevalent brands. You had Chipotle, where in the past they had fundamentally a crisis in food safety, which is one of the most challenging kind of trust issues that you could have if consumers are getting sick eating. And they went through both an employee plan and an operations plan internally to address it. And I remember there were headlines that Chipotle was shutting down stores to be able to do full day trainings to be able to manage that. And to me, our family's ordering Chipotle tonight. And so at least for our family, we've recovered from it, but it takes a lot of work to be able to regain that. Southwest Airlines, I think is another really great example this past holiday season. I mean, when you take a look at NPS scores for Southwest and as a brand, people love Southwest, but man, one holiday season and you have competitor airlines who had technology that performed better, you know, it was the biggest damage hit that yeah. that a southwest could take.
2: It kind of keeps you humble, right? I mean, mm-hmm. every brand has this risk. You think you're doing everything right, so you have to kind of stay humble and you also have to stay true to your customers and to your point. I think that if your customers and your prospects see that you are authentically and genuinely trying to fix something or address a gap in service mm-hmm. or whatever it is, they tend to be much more loyal to your brand. I think if you don't take action, if you don't have a plan, if you don't show people explicitly what you're doing to make things right. I think that's when you'll run into problems. And so I think that's another reason. One other comment I'll make too, because of what you just said, right? It takes years to build up a strong brand reputation and be a trusted brand. It can take seconds to destroy that. And I believe that being a trusted brand is actually a sustainable competitive differentiator and advantage for companies. It's a move for sure. It it is absolutely. And that's why you have to constantly be investing in it. And it's not just marketing, it's all of the functions, but I see marketing as the tip of the spear. They should be setting the example and pushing the company to make sure that people are looking at this very broadly.
1: Mm -hmm. Tactically, what do marketers need to know about trust and how does that actually come to life? I think about the outputs of a marketing function could be something, a press release. Well, that press release then ends up being the hundreds or thousands of articles that are written from a tactics standpoint. How should a marketer start to wrap their head around where we're, we're going to measure trust? We're going to try to increase trust and right. we're going to put together a plan to go after that because NPS is the thing that everybody always knows. There's a set methodology, you benchmarks, but what does that even mean for trust?
2: Yeah, but I'll say I kind of start at a higher altitude. So here's the way I'll define it, at least from the one trust perspective. We have four trust domains that we serve, privacy and data governance, GRC and security assurance, ethics and compliance, and ESG and sustainability. So every single of those areas are things that your customers, your prospects, your partners, your employees are looking at you for to say, are you trusted in those areas? So privacy and data governance, it's all the things that you and I just talked about. Tactically, what are marketers doing? Why am I collecting this data? How am I using this data? Have I told the customer prospect how I'm using this data? Am I giving them value for it? Am I respecting their consent and their preferences? Are you being compliant? Are you an ethical company? Do you have a code of conduct? All of that kind of thing. Do you have a hotline? ESG, are you doing your reporting? Are you doing your carbon accounting? All of the different things that a company needs to do to say, I know what we're doing. I'm reporting on it. I'm tracking on it. And marketers Get involved in many of those activities because you're either blogging about it, you're writing a thought leadership piece, you're drafting emails, you're doing campaigns, you're running customer advisory councils, you're doing events, your big user events. Think about it. You're out in social media and all of those are your touch points on any of these topics that I think are what I call the trust domains. And you're commenting on that or your people are seeing your company as that. So I think tactically, that's what marketers have to think about. What am I talking about in all four of those domains? Am I really representing my company? For instance, a lot of companies on their website have an impact center or their trust center. They Mm -hmm. put out their impact reports. What information you disclose on your website helps build trust. Marketers are usually the ones designing and putting that information up there as an example.
1: Yeah, I think taking one step back and kind of reading that back to you, the thing, the big aha for me is step one in building the trust is doing the right thing. And as a marketer within an organization, if you're not doing the right thing, hard to be able to share a good story about why somebody should be able to trust you. And that is really foundational, first and foremost. The second one that was really surprising to me, or not entirely surprising, but that I love is included is when you take a look at the ESG, because it's taking into account this really changing dynamics by age and by just who your customers are and what they put importance when they're selecting brands to spend their dollars with.
2: That's right. And you're really one of the things that I always say is your employee base also should look your customer base because you sell Mm -hmm. to all different generations. You sell probably depending on your company, you can sell in all different geographies. So you have all different cultures. You have different perspectives and you need to make sure also in your marketing that you're being inclusive. And Mm -hmm. so that's another thing I think marketers have to do. You have to know your audience. I always tell my marketing team no marketing in a bubble. You have to be out there talking to customers. You should know customers talk to customers. It's not just sales or support. Marketers have to be in front of customers talking to customers. You should know your customer better than anybody because that's the only way that you make a connection. Because the one thing that marketers love to do is we love to build what I call that emotional affinity to our brand. That Mm -hmm. means we want you to love our brand, be loyal to our brand, want to continue to buy from us, partner with us, be in our ecosystem. And the only way that you can do that is you really have to understand what's important to your customer, what's meaningful to them, so that you can talk to them in their language and really understand their business challenges.
1: Yeah, you know, there's that show Undercover Boss, which is always a hilarious show to be able to watch the good and the bad. I love the stories where you find a frontline employee who's just living it and is so passionate and gets it. And then the complete opposite and the shock and reaction, I didn't expect it. And probably behind the scenes as a CMO, the thing that's shocking to me is you are really misaligned with what your customer experience is. If you invite a TV film crew in and you get surprised on what your customer experience actually is, which essentially just tells me that within your organization, you don't have a culture of actually talking to customers.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I'll even ask marketers, but again, it's not just for marketing. I think this applies to any function is if you've designed something, if you have an experience, something that you expect a customer to go through. The first Mm -hmm. question I say is, did you use it yourself?
0: Did Mm -hmm. you actually
2: test that experience on yourself? And did it work well? Was it hard to understand? Was it complicated? Were you confused by it? Because if you are, your customer is going to be confused by it. I'm also a huge fan of testing. I love testing, and so I always encourage marketers, get out there and test concepts with customers. I'm doing something right now, we've been having a lot of fun, we're updating some of our messaging,
1: uh-huh. and
2: we have been testing, we've probably been in front of over 50 customers.
1: Yeah. And it's
2: so great to get their feedback because you're getting directly from them what resonates or what doesn't resonate. Yep. And I think what is really interesting to me on that is, when we get input internally, so we're also asking internal stakeholders, They were saying the complete opposite of what resonated for the customer. And it was great for me to come back in with that data and to be able to share with the team. This is what resonates with the customers versus what we thought internally was going to resonate with the customers. So, again, that customer input is really, really helpful to make sure you land.
1: Yeah. And there's a kind of a nugget there in what you said in terms of marketers leaning in and embracing the data that's so important. I think one of the funny things about working in marketing is, and there's not a lot of other functions like this. I don't think I can do a better job running finance than my finance team. I don't think I could be a better lawyer than the lawyers on the team. But for marketing, there's a lot of opinions about being able to do better marketing. And that's where being able to embrace the data is so important. And the two sides of that I just heard you mention are really like the quant and the qual of it. And the quant, our team recently ran a quant through one of the traditional firms that you would run a panel survey with. And then simultaneously, we spun up a small scale test, low dollars, running Facebook ads directly to the same type of audience that we would run in the quant to. The results were not the same. And so I think what's even more interesting is it can be tough to be stuck in that analyst consultant mindset of doing quote unquote research when where the rubber hits the road is in the true marketplace
2: yeah a a couple things that you said vincent so i have this kind of expression i share it with the executive team but I think those of us who have been in marketing for years, and for those of you listening, if you're going to be in marketing for years, there's this thing I always call, everybody practices marketing without a license, right? So <laughs> marketers study marketing. We're in this for years. And so right. You know, we do think it's a skill, right? Something that you learn mm-hmm. and you hone over years. Yet yep. to your point, I have never been in a company where everybody doesn't think they're good at marketing. And I think it's great, by the way, that people want to participate and share their ideas. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. but. It is a profession that needs to be respected because it takes years to hone your skills on this. But to your point also about data, one of the things I share with my marketers is they always say, roll around in the data. You cannot be a marketer in the year 2023 and not be comfortable with your data. So you got to be able to roll around in it. You can't just rely on data scientists or data analysts. Marketers have to be comfortable with data because let's face it, There is so much information. There's what over 8000 marketing automation tools out there that are constantly collecting data. So as a marketer, you have to at least have a baseline level of comfort with data just to be able to understand data as well. I saw your slide there right with the MarTech stack. So there's no way you can be a great marketer without having competency in those areas.
1: Yeah, 100% agree with you and I clicked the wrong button on my screen and brought a slide up too early. If you're listening to this podcast and in the video version of it, we're going to put up the marketing career framework, which is kind of this career framework for marketers and metrics and analytics that Lisa, you just mentioned is right there on the bottom right hand of the pyramid. It's absolutely something that's a strength. And this was something that I didn't learn in college, I had a degree in communications. And the number of times that we opened up a spreadsheet in college was I can't even remember it, right. But being able to run my own numbers is definitely something that has become a strength. But to your point, there's no certification to become a marketer per se. There's definitely Programs out there, Google has really great free certifications for anybody who wants to jump into a marketing career. HubSpot has really great free certifications for anybody who wants to jump into a marketing career. The other area, I'd be curious on your perspective, is I think every great marketer should dig into copywriting and messaging. Because so much of what we do doesn't matter whether it's the direct mail to outbound phone calls, to voicemails, to IVR messaging, to website copy, to the press release, to everything. At the heart of it, what is changing so frequently are the channels, especially with new social media apps that are coming. But behind it, the messaging and the copywriting doesn't change.
2: Yeah. And when you think about it, look at the different roles also in marketing. Product marketers constantly messaging and being Mm -hmm. able to tune that. Then you have content marketing. It's hard actually to find one job in marketing, the comms role, PR, you name it, analyst relations even that you're not writing. I think a core competency for marketers is you have to be comfortable with communications, understand how to communicate well, whether it's Mm -hmm. verbally or written. I think you have to have both skills. In addition, we said have fundamental understanding and appreciation of your data. And the interesting thing about talking data is Marketers, we all know chief marketing officers, right, a priority relationship for us is always the head of sales, whether it's the chief revenue officer, head of sales, whatever the title is. Another relationship that is absolutely crucial for success is the relationship with the CFO, because as a chief marketing officer, you're constantly trying to prove the return on investment of the expenditures that you have because you're trying to either get more variable dollars to pump up your campaigns run more campaigns hit more audiences or hire additional skill sets and the yep. first person you're going to be talking to is the cfo and so you have to be very comfortable with your data because you need to be able to have a discussion at the level that a cfo is looking at because they're looking across the company and they're trying to make sure what's our capital allocation because they're figuring out capital allocation for the entire company where's the best place to put this money And so a chief marketing officer really needs the help of their team as well to help them put together a really concise, cogent discussion and argument for the CFO to say, this money will be well spent and you're going to get a high return on it for the company.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. When you take a look at the different types of marketers, it's always funny when people try to categorize themselves into a sub-niche within marketing. Oh, I'm a brand marketer. No, I'm a performance marketer. There isn't a right answer on, is it better to be a brand marketer or a performance marketer? The answer is you got to understand both sides because the best data-driven performance marketing with a horrible brand and without good copy and messaging behind it isn't going to perform very well. And you could have the best messaging and branding in the world, but if it's not being delivered through the right channel to the right person at the right point in time, it's not going to be as effective. But to your point, something that I'm seeing more and more is the evolving role of the CMO is expected to be somebody who is data-driven at the table. And this is no longer an exercise when you take a look at the great, fortune 100 brands and how they built their brands over time. And you kind of have this person who's the philosophical marketer that comes off today as almost a little too professorial and not tactical enough and not in the real business enough. When I say the real business I'm talking about at the end of the day.
2: Yeah. I will say one of the things I love about marketing and even being a chief marketing officer, but also being in marketing is you have to fly at all altitudes, So you have to be Uh a big strategic thinker and you also have to be able to execute tactically and understand operations because you have to travel up and down those altitudes all day long. So I agree with you there. And one of the big things I'm also seeing happening with marketing organizations or chief marketing officer roles is more and more leaning into the business strategy of the company. Marketing Uh can have an amazing impact on the business strategy What's the market? What's the market opportunity? What are the big business problems out there? Geographies, how do we think the best strategy is to go enter a market? And we should have a really tight and close partnership there and marketing should weigh in. The other thing that's interesting about marketing is, to your point, we have multiple horizons. You were saying whether you're a brand marketer or, say, a performance marketer or demand generation. Sometimes it's just the horizon. Brand, when you're investing in brand, that can just be a longer time horizon, right? To build up this brand, it's not something that happens overnight. If you're a demand gen marketer, maybe you're trying to get something turned over so you get leads immediately that week. The fact of the matter is, though, you're still exercising similar skills. Great writing, great understanding of your customer, great messaging, Mm -hmm. understanding what channels to use. You're exercising all the same skills. It's just your time horizon might be different.
1: Yeah, I love that way of looking at that because when you take a look at something demand generation, search engine optimization is a perfect example. It's the seed that you have to plant early, but for anybody who gardens, this is probably the exact same time period. If you plant asparagus this spring, you won't be able to harvest asparagus for three years. And SEO is kind of like that for a brand new company. So it's this thing that you got to be able to do, but does it need to be perfect day one? No, not at all. It could be a 5% activity type of thing. And there's a different channel and a different method. But the journey that a lot of early stage companies go through that literally in the first three years, you're evolving those strategies at a certain point in time. And the other piece of it is the product is evolving at that point in time too, because a lot of the earlier stage companies that I work with, marketing is an input. To being able to create great product Mm -hmm. and so that's the piece at the end of the day i think you're saying with the business strategy is you're not order taking this product this service this experience a true kind of global leader is at a seat at the table influencing those product and business strategy decisions based on what they're seeing from their customer experience and in the market and then also going and capturing the demand and turning that into revenue
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's why anybody in a marketing role, in particular CMO, you have to be comfortable in front of your customers, talking to your customers, understanding their problems, presenting to them. You need to make those investments because that's when you can do really great marketing. You can also expand the influence of the marketing role. And that's where it's fun because you get to do strategic things. You get to do operational things. You get to do more tactical things. You really get to do those different things in a company.
1: So when companies kind of, you know, I talked a little bit about the journey of the early stage startup, but every company goes through changes, whether they're adding new divisions, they're adding new markets, whether fundamentally a shift in the industry and they're pivoting their primary product and trying to drive revenue in a new area. How do you see the CMO's role in evolving that narrative along with the company's growth?
2: Yeah. So I think it's really important that everybody sees the narrative. It's a story and you're constantly telling the story of your company. So if you're an early stage company, everybody tries to go from one product or one offering to multiple. Mm -hmm. There's not a company that I haven't talked to that is always saying, how do I get multi-products or multi-offerings out there? Which means that you're going after additional segments, additional geographies, you're dealing with additional cultures, can't treat it that way. And so Mm -hmm. I think marketing has this great position because you're constantly updating your narrative and evolving the story to talk about the bigger pieces. I'll tell you, the thing that makes me cringe the most is if I'm talking to customers or say you have an executive briefing center and you bring them in and you talk about everything that you're doing, the worst thing I always hear is, I didn't know you did that. That means Mm. that you're not telling your story well. You're not communicating well to your customers. So you have to see this as an evolution. Nothing is static. And you're constantly evolving what your company is about and communicating that out to the audiences and all the stakeholders that need to be impacted. And I think a big job for us to do and do it well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that's really where the heart of the messaging and heart of the strategy comes in. Because to your point, your customers, even as you're announcing new products, should not be surprised by those products if you've framed up the problem in the market and what you're solving for in the market. Two different examples of this. Number one was the Away suitcase that I feel a little bit regretting buying the navy blue one because everybody else also bought the navy blue one. And so everything that's coming out or is looks exactly like the suitcase that I was proud to be an early adopter for. But Away, when they expanded their travel line, they're really just about making travel seamless, easy, and introduce a little element of really great design into your travel. So it wasn't a surprise when they came out with the backpack that slides over the suitcase and fits in so that the backpack doesn't fall off of the suitcase. Wasn't a surprise when they launched the duffel. And as they expanded into just travel in general, that's always been their brand. Is about making travel easier and to introduce really great design and affordability in And so none of that is a surprise. Apple is another great example Mm -hmm. where Apple was a company that they've always said, right? Think different. They target creatives and they're all about creativity and allowing you to be able to live your best life, especially if you consider yourself to be a creative person. So as they expand from computer to iPad to phone to Apple TV, and I'm not quite sure about this last one, the $3,000 headset It's also not a surprise because they're just introducing additional screens, but what they fundamentally do as a company, as a brand, doesn't change at all.
2: That's an important point. Whenever I'm trying to help with brand positioning, what's the brand of our company, what do we stand for, what's our purpose mission, but what do we do? You want that to be broad enough that it's logical to be able to do this growth and extension without having to Mm -hmm. change the brand of the company. But you can't have it be so broad that it's meaningless and everybody can say that. So there's an art and a science to doing that as well. And I've done that with multiple companies where I have been trying to say, what is our brand or brand positioning? Isn't it big enough so that we can grow and expand where somebody's going to not scratch their head and say, why is that company doing this? And that's why it's so important to say, what do you stand for? What do you believe to be true in the world such that your company exists? Yep. And I think that's kind of a fundamental question about why do you exist? What is your purpose and mission? And then you can expand out from there.
1: Yeah, when you take a look at companies that rebrand, companies that shift in the market, you have an example of a project, the journey that you went through. Like what was the thing that you were trying to solve for in evolving the brand and walk me through how you think about approaching that?
2: Well, I have a great example that we did at OneTrust. So many of you might have read the book Play Bigger, but it's all about creating a whole new category. And this, say, I'm in tech, so it's creating a whole new brand and category of software, which we call trust intelligence. So we said, we're going to have a whole new category of software as a service, which is called trust intelligence. When we founded our company, the company was known for being amazing at privacy, right? Privacy Mm -hmm. and data governance. And that was our core. But we had to expand out and say, we're not just about that, we're about trust because we had three additional clouds that we were offering. We got into GRC and security, we got into ethics, we got into ESG. So Mm -hmm. we needed to define our brand to be broad enough, which is why we said, you know what, we offer trust intelligence to companies. And that was broad enough so that we could expand out from privacy into these other domains and nobody scratched their head. We were known about design, buildings, bridges, products. And we said, we wanted to also get into the manufacturing space. So it was about designing and making. How do you do that so that you can expand your brand? Sometimes people do the brand expansion through acquisition and then Mm -hmm. people say, oh, okay, that's logical. You just bought a company that has all of that expertise and has all of those relationships. So now I can see how it sits under your brand, but sometimes you're doing it organically because you're just building the products yourselves and bringing them to market. And I think you can do it both ways, but again, that was a story that we did and we had to logically explain to our customers why you can go from privacy to trust and it's a very logical move.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As you've grown throughout your career, there was something that Warren Buffett said at one point, it was in one of his annual reports, and it really stuck with me. And it was something that just of he could count the number of decisions in his career that really made an impact on Berkshire Hathaway on a few hands, which is kind of incredible to think about. I wake up every single day, I got to pick which pair of shoes I'm going to wear. And that feels like a major decision for me. It's kind of baffling that he considers these 20 or so decisions to be the ones that fundamentally mattered, what were those big decisions in your career that kind of drove you forward to the next part of the journey? And looking back at, are there any of those decisions that you would have made differently?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I would kind of answer it from two perspectives. One is I learned early in my career. And I think that one of the things that helped me is you have to be open to new opportunities. A lot Mm -hmm. of times people have never done that before. This is new to me. I don't have experience in that. You have to be open to saying, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be a lifelong learner. I'm going to be all about the fact that I can learn this. I can learn from anybody and be open to those opportunities. So I would say that's huge and something that really guided me in my career. The other thing I could say as I progressed in my career, the other thing that I have learned an invaluable lesson on is one of the most important jobs of leaders and managers is to hire well. Your team is everything because you get things done through your team and the people that you hire. The people that you hire are the ones that attract additional people to your company. And that's how you build your culture and you build the value of your company. So I think as you progress in your career, sometimes people are like, "Ah." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's get this hiring done. You have to really treat this as important. One of your top responsibilities is to hire well, bring in talented people that will attract additional talented people and that are a great culture fit for your company. As a lot of people use the language of a culture ad. And yep. you really need to be cognizant of that as a leader.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more in both of those spaces. One Got a big trend from this year, if I were to sum up, it's the year of AI on the forefront of so much that we're doing a lot. And we've had AI for years, but the thing that's different is this generative AI that's based off of a larger data set and the ability to really consumerization that AI is driving a lot of innovation. From a privacy perspective, from a trust perspective, what should marketers be aware of and what are the concerns? You have some very large companies that have fundamentally banned their employees from using AI because employees were cutting and pasting confidential data into an AI algorithm that's essentially being used to using that data to be able to train the algorithm in the future. There's some, Microsoft has made announcements about private instances on private cloud where the data is housed in a certain way, but what's top of mind for you?
2: So I think artificial intelligence is a huge, like there's not one company that's not talking about it, talking about how they're making investments in it, but here's the angle that I would say is very interesting. When you're training these models, you're using data. Now, That data, why did you collect that data? What was the purpose for collecting that data? Can you actually use it to train this model? Do you have permission to be able to use it for this model? And so is there bias in the data that you're using? Because if there's bias in the data, then that's gonna also impact the training that you're doing. And a lot of times I think people look more at the end result, but I think you also have to be very cognizant as a marketer because we're the ones collecting a lot of this data. Everybody else is too, but again, what was the purpose? Are you using it for what the purpose was? Do you have the right to be able to use it to train these models? Is there any bias in your data? And if there is, there's a big impact. Imagine having to go back and clean that up after the fact. That has Mm -hmm. huge ramifications. And so we're very cognizant of it. I think marketers need to be very cognizant of that as well because how you train these llms is with data sets (laughs) and they're big data sets how are you collecting this data are you allowed to be using it is there's sensitive data in there is there private information in there you have to know about that because it will have a negative impact down the road
1: yeah we're at a very interesting place right now i'm starting to see camps appear of those that are fearful that the ai is going to take their job away And on the opposite side are people who are saying this is going to be the solution to everything. And I think the truth is really like somewhere in between.
2: I agree. I never believe that some people say with automation, AI, robots, that they're going to be taking everybody's jobs. So here's what I would say. New jobs get created when this new technology arrives. I think one of the big differences that's happening now is it used to take decades for a new technology to take place. Or adoption. Yeah, Yeah. And now, boom, it'll be five months. But what you're finding is new jobs are being created. When you think about it, when did we start to have data scientists? If there's a robot, now you have jobs to maintain robots or fix robots, right? So I always look at it more the glasses half full, that new technology comes in. It might replace or change jobs, but it will also add different jobs, titles that we don't even know what they are today. We wouldn't even know what they are. They're going to be here in a year from now. And I think every year we start to see that. We see just new jobs, different jobs being created because this technology opens up a whole new door.
1: 100%. I think a good place for marketers to be today is thoughtfully curious. And I think everybody should be experimenting. And experiment doesn't necessarily mean even at work. Experimenting could be in your personal life. I took a trip recently to LA. We got two young kids and ChatGPT basically came up with a recommendation for the activities that we should do in a city that I lived in the past. So I knew the city pretty well and the the recommendations were pretty spot on. And I type another message that says it's raining. Give me a completely different list. And it was surprisingly great. And I think that's a low risk way of at least understanding the technology. Now applying it is a completely different beast and it varies company by company. And having that discussion inside of the company is it's the appropriate important. place to be right now. And probably is step one.
2: Yeah, so I think executive you team should always be talking about land AI safely in your company, mm-hmm. right? You want it to be a safe landing, you want to be using it yep. wisely. And you and I both know, too, there's going to be regulations, there is going to yep. be regulatory bodies, there's going to be things that come in to try to help make sure that we always use things in an ethical way, in yep. a way that's good for people and planet. And I count on that as well.
1: I think there's some companies that can lean all the way in because maybe you're selling some type of good online through e-commerce, and it's a lighthearted category. Healthcare, on the opposite side of the spectrum, the decisions matter, and the outcomes matter, and in life or death situations, I hope the regulation comes sooner, and I hope it comes faster, because what's abundantly clear is that the cat's out of the bag, it's, it's not going to be put away. There's too many companies working on this. And even if one company makes a decision to slow down, it's already in the market and the market's right. moving fast.
2: Yeah. So we should be doing everything that we can do. And hopefully with regulations, that we make sure that things are being used for good. Yeah. We always want, whenever people <laughs> say we're creating technology, we always say we want it to be used for good. And so mm-hmm. I think all of us have to be a part of that journey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Lisa, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time. If somebody wants to follow your journey or learn more about you, where should they connect?
2: Yeah, LinkedIn. Send me you know, a LinkedIn request. That would be a great, great place to start.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much again for joining us. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure to like and subscribe. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Destination CMO. We'll see you next time.
0: This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Fanfan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.